forever. Dog. Hi, I was really lucky to talk to Ben McIntyre, who is one of my favorite authors writing today. Uh, he writes these unbelievable nonfiction accounts, uh, mostly of World War II spycraft. Um, check out Operation Mincemeat, the true spy story that changed the course of World War II. Check out Agent Zigzag, the true wartime story of Eddie Chapman, lover, betrayer, hero, spy. Uh, these are, I think, two of his most accessible and really most fun books. Uh, but he's written almost a dozen books at this point about uh, World War II spycraft. And they're so readable. He creates these unbelievable stories uh, based on access to uh, documents that were not before public uh, and firsthand accounts in many times. And we talk about all of this on on the podcast in this interview. Uh, it was really a treat to get to talk to uh, ben McIntyre. Before we get to that, hello, Madeline Miller. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Madeline, you are the author of several books, including most recently a book called Circe. Can you tell folks a little bit what that book is about? Sure. So it is um, sort of a, a reconstruction and a retelling of the myths around uh, the character of Circe, who we first meet in Homer's Odyssey. She is a witch who turns Odysseus's men to pigs and tries to turn Odysseus into a pig. Um, and then she ends up actually helping Odysseus and he stays on her island for a year and she gives him um, a lot of good advice. So, uh, But we really see very little about her. In the Odyssey. And so I wanted to kind of, you know, how does she get to this island? How does one start turning men to pigs? Um, I <laughs> wanted to answer some of those questions. Yeah, I think that was that your jumping off point. I know, and I know Cersei sort of popped up in other uh, myths, other stories, but she's always sort of seen as this uh, monstrous character, despite helping uh, Odysseus. Um, was the the answer to why turn men to pigs the your entry point? Um, it actually it was actually more from that impulse that I, I feel she has been cast as the villain. Um, that oftentimes people talk about her kind of in in the same breath that you might talk about you know Medea who murders her two children. Mm -hmm. um, and you know I I do have some sympathy actually for Medea, but uh, but Circe is 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 really a, a different character, and and the the Circe that Homer gives us is much more sympathetic and much more complex. She has this menacing side, but she also has this very benevolent healing side, and she you know notices that Odysseus is exhausted and grieving the loss of all his comrades. He's at that point by the time he lands on her island, he's lost eleven out of his twelve ships and all the men on them. Um, and so, you know, not only does she keep him on on her island with all his men for a year to kind of rejuvenate them, but when she sends him on his way, she gives him all this wonderful advice about, you know, how to get past the sirens. That's her idea with the beeswax in the ears um, and and all of that. And so I really wanted to kind of bring that complexity back to her character that I feel like pop culture is sort of ironed out. She's become, you know, this man-hating figure, the kind of black widow spider at the center of the web who lures men in. Um, but that's she she has a much more, you know, full profile in Homer. And so I wanted to kind of bring in that fullness. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's been a while since I read the Odyssey. Uh, I think it was when I was teaching it to a 10th grade class. And boy, <laughs> did they not get the complexity. But <laughs> I'm, I'm it's it's interesting to me that, you know, in the Odyssey, she does have this 
complicated personality, right? She's both harmful and helpful to the hero of the story. Why do you think that's been lost over the years? Um, I think, well, I think some of it is, is just simple confusion. I think there are two nymphs whose name begin, whose names begin with C in the Odyssey <laughs> that Odysseus sleeps with. And then there's her and Calypso. And I think people oftentimes kind of conflate the two. Um, Calypso is the one who keeps Odysseus on her island for seven years against his will. Uh-huh. Uh, and Circe is the one where he stays for a year and he actually wants to stay longer. And, <laughs> you know, but his men are kind of like, hey, you should get going. And, you know, she immediately helps him on his way when he wants to go. So I think I think partially there's been a little bit of kind of smushing those two women together. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only does Cersei turn people, turn men to pigs, but then she keeps them prisoner on her island. Uh, but I, I think it's also just that, you know, it's such a vivid, it's, I, I think people like the story better about, you know, this evil woman who's turning men to pigs. And um, actually the, Circe's roots are are a little bit older than some Greek mythology, and and they're not totally Greek. Hmm. It seems that she has some roots in um, Turkic goddesses like Sibylle, the Great Mother, who are often associated with animals like lions, um, who are these kind of fertility figures um, who are both benevolent and frightening. And so that seems to be more the legacy she's coming from. Oh, that's really neat. Were you able to sort of roll all of this historical stuff, this literary stuff, and then even, you know, the the thousands of years that came after the Odyssey, uh, were you able to sort of swirl that all together to make your own character? And, and how is she like and unlike the versions that have come before? Sure. Um, I tried. I tried to kind of put it all, put it all in <laughs> and, yeah. and mix it up. Um, the, the part that, I mean, Homer was my jumping off point and, and Homer gave me this really fascinating detail that really shaped the whole novel, which is that he describes her as the dread goddess who speaks like a human, like Hmm. a mortal. Um, and that was a really interesting detail for me. And I, I, you know, he doesn't explain it. Homer doesn't explain it, but as a novelist immediately, I, I thought, you know, this is a character who belongs to two worlds. She is born a goddess, but she has this piece of her that somehow yearns for or communicates with the human world, the mortal world. Um, and so I, you know, I, I liked that idea of, of this character who kind of belongs to neither culture, but has, has a piece of her that is in both. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that was, you know, in, in that aspect, there's quite a lot of of the Odyssey in there, even though I am pushing back. Basically, what I decided to do with the Odyssey is sort of, okay, that's the traditional male heroic narrative. Now, what's that same story, but told from Circe's perspective? And so I allowed myself to kind of take particular details that Homer gives us and transform them, you know, out of that kind of traditional male narrative um, into Cersei's narrative. So one of the details that Homer gives us, for example, is he says that Cersei has this beautiful, um, beautiful braided hair. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I was thinking about is here she is, she's a witch who's constantly tromping through the woods, you know, (laughs) gathering herbs and digging stuff up. I think you'd braid your hair, you know, it's just practical. (laughs) Right. And so I tried to kind of let my imagination go into moments like that and, you know, sort of transform them from from what they have been in, into into how they would be lived experience for her. Um, 
I had a couple other major sources. I also used Ovid. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ovid gives us the story of Circe's transforming the nymph Scylla. This is a, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but it is a 3,000-year-old <laughs> story. So. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Um, there, there's a love triangle in Ovid uh, between Scylla, a nymph, or Scylla, mm-hmm. uh, Glaucus, and who is a mortal, who's a god who used to be immortal, and Circe. Um, and Circe turns Scylla, takes her vengeance out on Scylla and turns her into a terrible monster. Um, and so I, I wanted to keep that basic narrative. But in Ovid, her reasons for, for doing it are, are pretty shallow and she doesn't really have to live with the consequences of it. And so I gave her a little, I kept the love triangle. I kept the fact that she does this terrible thing, but I made her have a slightly better reason for it. And I, I tried to give her kind of a, a more full psychology in, in how she would approach it. And then I, then I made her live with it. So <laughs> there were, there were things like that where I, I was taking a myth and really kind of speaking back to it. And again, trying to transform it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It, it sounds like such a – I mean, I, I love the book, I'm, and I told you that when we met back at the uh, LA Times uh, Festival of Books. But Thank you. hearing about the what went into it, it sounds like such a fun exercise and, you know, sort of uh, craft to build out this character. What were the challenges to working on a character like this? For me, the biggest challenge was actually her divinity. Um, I, you know, here she is, she needs to live for hundreds, thousands of years. And I wanted her voice to reflect that. Circe, by nature, is a very, and as I imagine her, is a very direct, um, honest, almost blunt person. Mm-hmm. But I wanted her speech to have a, you know, this is a first person um narrative and so we spend the whole time in Cersei's head you know hearing her voice looking at everything through her eyes and i wanted her perspective to have a little bit of strangeness to it of kind of alien timelessness um that came from the fact that you know partially she's speaking a language that she has been speaking for thousands of years mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so totally she, she will naturally have some kind of oddnesses in it um but also just that you know the fact that she has had this immortal perspective on time and and eternity and and to to bring in touches of that. So, you know, working to make that really authentic um, took me a long time, and I wrote a lot of pages and threw them out, and wrote a lot <laughs> sure. of pages and threw them out. <laughs> that's that's always the tough thing, right? Writing a <laughs> character who is so much smarter has such a larger perspective <laughs> than we we mere humans. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but you you really pulled it off. Uh, I I can't recommend this book highly enough. This is I can cut this out. Uh, I can cut out this part if you want. But <laughs> if we're making a movie of this novel, <laughs> who plays Cersei? Um, so you are asking someone who is a theater director, which means that I have a lot of angst about this question. (laughs) I feel like I would need to see, you know, I'd need to like see the auditions, like let's get the sides, let's see the whole thing. So I do not have a good answer for this. Um, (laughs) That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Your, your, uh, loyalty to stagecraft is an excellent answer. (laughs) Um, Madeline, let me wrap up by, first of all, tell people where they can, uh, find more about you and about the book? Sure. So I have a website, um, madelinemiller.com, uh, and I, I have some kind of additional stuff there. 
Um, I have some discussion questions if there are book clubs who who read the book and just sort of more about Cersei and and also about these myths in general. Um, there's a, a wonderful book out there written by a, um, a scholar called Transformations of Cersei, if you really want to do a deep dive into Cersei. And she sort of talks about um, Cersei over over the centuries and different interpretations of Cersei. Uh, I unfortunately only found the book after I was finished with my novel, but it's a great book. <laughs> that, it sounds terrific. It, it sounds like a great companion piece. Uh, I can't wait <laughs> yeah. to dig into that. Um, yeah. That's great. People should check it out. Uh, you know, go go get it from Amazon or m- more importantly from your local bookstore. Uh, yeah. Madeline, let me wrap up by asking you, who are some of your favorite pop culture witches? Ooh, well, so I've had a big turnaround on this, on, on answering this question because, you know, I saw the Wizard of Oz movie <laughs> and, you know, I always found Glinda a little, you know, I just, I was not, entranced by her character (laughs) but in studying witches what i found out is that one of the early women sort of feminists who was writing about witches um was this woman named matilda jocelyn gage and she was one of the first people to say you know hey i think this whole witch thing isn't really about satan i think it's really about hating women um (laughs) And, you know, which sounds like duh today, but at the time was, <laughs> you know, kind of shocking. Yeah. And it turns out she is L. Frank Baum's mother-in-law. Wow. And that he created the character of Glinda partially sort of in honor of her as, you know, the example that there are good witches out there. And um, and so now I've had a real turnaround on Glinda. <laughs> That's really <laughs> awesome. And I'm going to have to look yeah. for her work. That sounds really cool. Uh, Madeline, thank you so much for chatting today. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hope to talk again soon. Uh, Now is the time for you to call up your local comic book shop and pre-order The Only Thing I Care About, my new Vertigo comic called Hexwives. It's about witches and it's about gender politics. Does that sound fun? Probably not, but it is. The artist is amazing. The colorist is amazing. The editors are unbelievable. Uh, I'm just hanging on for dear life and hoping that people buy this so I can tell dozens and dozens of stories in this world. So please call up your local comic book shop. If you don't know where it is, go to comicshoplocator.com, put in your zip code, and uh, order that comic, Hexwives. It comes out on Halloween. You just tell them you want it. They'll hold a copy for you, and then you go to the store and buy it. It's easy. It's like $4. And I think you're going to like it. I do. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers' Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! This is the podcast. This is how we start. I have Ben McIntyre. I'm thrilled to talk to you. Um, if you know Ben, it is from the histories that you've written. Uh, the ones that, that grabbed me were Operation Mincemeat and Agent Zigzag before that. Uh, but the Napoleon of Crime, I think, was where I first discovered Gosh, you go back right to the beginning. I'm impressed. I feel like I've been reading the New York Times book review since I was like 20 <laughs> years old. And that, right. I remember that was in there. And yeah, was like, that's that just right. sounds really interesting. Um, but tell me a little bit about your, your background and how you came to start putting together these histories as, as a writer. Right. Well, I'm, I, did, I studied history at Cambridge um, longer ago than I like to remember. Um, at one point, I, my father was an academic historian at Oxford, in fact, um, but, um, which is partly why I went to Cambridge. But he, um, 
uh, and so that kind of instilled in me a love of history. And I was going to be an academic historian. I thought that was where I was going to head. But then I, in fact, I came to America and did a, did a, uh, a course at Columbia, at the J School there, mm-hmm. and decided that really journalism was my thing. So in a funny way, I suppose, you could argue, and I mean this in a positive light, I sort of combine journalism with history. Mm-hmm. So the sorts of history that I write are non, narrative non-fiction. But I try to always stick to the to the facts while telling a story which can be quite a tricky little balance to do but a little like a journalist I suppose or, mm-hmm. or what journalism aspires to be I gather as much information as I possibly can uh, and then try to tell the best story I can get out of that so it's a, there is yeah. it is a sort of journalistic approach in some For ways. Sure. I wondered if you had a journalism background because these do yeah. read like, you know, long form articles in many ways or, or something like that. Well, that's right. I mean, my day job as it were is I, I work for the Times of London mm-hmm. so, and I've worked on the Times of London for 25 years now. So I was I was I was in America for a lot of that time. I was in New York and and Washington mm-hmm. uh, for about 10 of those years. Um, and, and writing a lot of books at the same time. So I, I, I've always tried to sort of balance the journalism, the daily journalism with the kind of longer form book book writing. What kind of journalism are you doing for the well, Times or even for the foreign? Times? Yeah, I was I was a foreign correspondent for the Times okay. for many years. So I was the bureau chief in in New York and then and oh, no, then okay. Paris for three years and then back again in Washington for another four years. Um, two of my three children were born here, so I, I you know I sort of considered myself to be kind of partly an honorary <laughs> American. Um, well, but um, and in fact, I, I was rather, I mean, uh, some of my my earliest books were were written here on sort of American themes, which we can sort of talk about yeah, I'm later. Curious but um, about that, yeah, I mean, so, yes, I mean, so it's narrative nonfiction. I try to tell true stories in a way that is as gripping and as uh, novelistic as I can make them without ever making anything up, mm-hmm. um, because I think that's absolutely critical to this. What I don't write is what used to be called faction i.e., you know, you take a factual basis and then embroider it into sure. a story. So I've always tried to be very rigorous about that, so that if I say, if I write, for example, you know, the cornflowers were, were blooming at the side of the road, that's because I know they were, yeah. um, or I have a diary, or I have a letter, or I have something that, that gives me that piece of information. Ditto in the same way that if I ascribe thoughts and feelings mm-hmm. to people, I don't make them up, they come from whatever evidence I can find. If, if I can't find evidence of what they thought or felt, I don't write it. Uh, and that can create, oh, we're getting sort of in a way ahead of ourselves here, but, but that can create odd kind of lacuna in your story because obviously the factual record sometimes isn't full enough for you to be able to say everything that happened. And on those occasions, I actually think readers rather appreciate it if you say, we have no idea what happened for those three years. It's an empty space and, you know, we move on. So I try to avoid speculation. I try to avoid any kind of throwing out into what I hope and believe and think might have happened somewhere else in the forest because I think readers always spot that. I think the minute you start to to embellish, mm-hmm. um, then you are you're actually doing a disservice, and, and you get I think you get spotted pretty quickly. Well, I think that's the success of these books is you know they they do they feel real, and that that certainly goes to your research. I mean, I think two things you know that that empty space provided by a lack of documentation. It's an interesting territory where that actually can create drama. Mm. Uh, and I wonder if that's something that you've 
ever played with as a way to just sort of start teasing out a story or, or even a mystery. Absolutely. It creates drama. And it also, I think, in the part of readers, if you do it right, creates um, a tension, a sort of dramatic yeah. tension, but also a kind of confidence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you, if you are candid with the reader, whenever you possibly can be, then I think that, that, that sort of solidifies the relationship in a strange way. So I am not, I, you know, I always smell a rat when I'm reading a book that says, you know, it is easy to imagine mm-hmm. uh, that so-and-so must have thought this or yeah. that. And, and I, it's not easy to imagine. And <laughs> once you've started imagining it, you're sort of making it up. Yeah. Uh, even, no matter how much research it's based on, if you are, if you are vaulting thoughts and feelings into somebody else's head into the narrative that's you're heading in a fictional direction and that's a diff- that's a different thing i'm always very flattered when um reviewers or or, or readers say to me oh you know it reads like a novel mm-hmm. you must have made some of this up um and i always love that because then usually i say well okay tell me which <laughs> which bits you think i've made up um and Usually, in fact, almost always, I hope I can I can I can say, well, actually, that comes from the documents, that comes mm-hmm. from evidence here or there, um, and it's always rather, rather sort of I suppose it's a slightly I told you so thing, but it's it's kind of <laughs> it is satisfying um, when well, people has say to be satisfying in both ways, mm-hmm. right? Like there is a little I told you so, yeah. but there's also look at the story that I've yeah, formed yeah. out of the material, I guess, and there's also the kind of. The truth is stranger than fiction yeah. line. And, and, of course, that's partly the choice of subject that I choose to write about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I tend to write about pretty eccentric, unlikely individuals. They're not, I don't write about sort of one-dimensional, um, obvious heroes and heroines. My people are often very complicated, um, often very conflicted. They don't tend to, they're often wildly eccentric. They're often actually extremely bad, quite a lot of them. I mean, I write about rogues and miscreants and Mm -hmm. people who do the right thing for the wrong reasons and people who do the wrong thing for the right reasons um, because the sort of backdrop of principally espionage and war that I write about has very little that is black and white. It tends to be a rather complicated moral sort of squishy delicious mess where nothing is ever quite black and white Uh, on the whole spies are themselves tremendous fabulists they tend to make up everything and they lie like bandits so uh, half the fun of these sort of stories is trying to tease out the truth from extremely unreliable uh, unreliable narrators of their own lives. Well, this was the other sort of half of that question, is you are working from, oftentimes from primary sources and diaries and things like that. Um, and on the one hand, your characters are liars by trade, if not by nature. Um, but you're also, you know, reading highly subjective work. Right, like a diary is someone's point of view on this. I'm, Absolutely, I'm curious about sort of that well, unraveling. Well, and spies are particularly notorious for this sort of thing. I mean, spies make up their own lives. In fact, yeah. I've often thought that the sort of the re- there is a reason why so many great novelists have been involved in the in the espionage trade is because and I, you know, I'm thinking particularly of British novelists actually, but you know John le Carré, mm-hmm. Graham Greene, Somerset Maugham, John Buchan. They were all in the spy trade. And actually, in some ways, what spies do is not so very different from what novelists do. Is you, you try to create a sort of parallel fake, for want of a better word, world. And you try to lure other people into it. And the better you are at that, the better you're going to be at the espionage game. And probably the better you're going to be when you retire at being a novelist. <laughs> um, so... Uh, 
Yes, I mean they are unreliable narrators. They are they are often wildly imaginative, uh, if that's and I mean that both for good and for ill. Right. Um, they one of the great pleasures of working from real primary material on this stuff, and by that I mean the kind of intelligence mm-hmm. files which have been released in increasing volume. Uh, both in Britain and in America, actually, but actually probably more in Britain. MI5, the internal security service of Great Britain, now routinely releases Mm -hmm. its intelligence files. So you can access this extremely voluminous, very detailed um, sort of accounting of particular operations and particular missions and so on. And what gives that material a very special quality, I think, is that it is written by and for people who never expected it to be made public. Mm-hmm. So it is, it, is, it is secret information that has been made public. And so therefore it has a quality of honesty that you don't often find in government files um, in the sense that they're not trying to give an impression, they're not trying to massage the record, they're, they are actually hmm. in real time, as it were, telling you what happened. And so when it goes wrong, which it frequently does in, in espionage stories, there is a kind of, there is an oh-my-goodness quality to them that is absolutely thrilling. And so they, they provide a kind of warp and weft to a story that is quite unique. I mean, I think if you worked in any other sort of government um, bureaucratic world, you would find a very different quality to the, to the way mm-hmm. that it is written. I mean, if you're writing about the civil service, you know, the people who know that it's going to come out... Right. Uh, certainly the wartime spies write, uh, often write very well actually, um, but in a way that is kind of honest. So you have that funny balance between the individual spies who tend to write their memoirs later in life and embellish like mad, (laughs) and then you've got the sort of, the official record and when you can set one against the other, that's when you find the sort of, the real narrative drive of a story. These files, these declassified files, um, what, what do they look like? Well, they are manila folders of reports and interrogations and um, they're a weird mixture, actually, because they contain all sorts of stuff. I mean, the ones that I did for Agent Zigzag, for example, I mean, those contained all sorts of stuff in there, letters and his diary that he wrote when he was imprisoned, uh, poems, um, photographs. I mean, they they are really the whole, the whole, lot really I mean they, they tell I mean the Operation Mincemeat files are enormous I mean they stand about gosh they stand about five feet high if you pile them up and they are an hour by hour not just day by day but hour by hour accounts of how to put together a deception operation so they they have a kind of depth and a breadth that is quite unique I think so yeah I mean you can and you can consult them in the National Archives in, in London you simply go and you get the original files they're not copies yeah that's really interesting they're, they're actually the that's real thing so you can hold the sort of that strange rice paper they used to do all the, <laughs> the duplicates on you can actually sort of feel it um, and it's it's quite a thrill that actually I bet. I mean, you're immersing yourself. You're immersing yourself literally in your story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, again, you know, because there's so much of it, you're in a way spoilt for choice, which is mm-hmm. a lovely thing for a narrative nonfiction mm-hmm. writer. Because one of the arts of, I think, of narrative nonfiction is, is what you don't put in. Yeah. Because you're not trying to write a comprehensive scholarly history that contains all the facts. Right. You're trying to tell a story that will engage the reader and make them turn the page. You're, you're not 
selling a line or, or writing a particular slant on history or even trying to tell everything that you can possibly find out because sure. if you do that you can kill the story so quite often I find myself thinking what's what's the best thing I'm not going to use here it's mm-hmm. that old journalistic cliche of you know the best the best story you ever wrote is the one in your top drawer that you never find right. you know that sort of so so there is an art I think to sort of paring down what is a, a, a hugely voluminous amount of information often. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I wanted to hear about your process for doing that and, you know, using any of the books as an example. Uh, well, How do you start um, to find that story? I suppose, um, well, I suppose Agent Zigzag is probably a good one to start with. I mean, that's the story of a, of a war... Well, he was a pre-war gangster, mm-hmm. really. I mean, he was a high-rolling crook, a forger and a con man and a blackmailer and a pretty <laughs> evil piece of work, actually. He was a charming man. Uh, he was a tremendous womanizer and great fun, but he, was, he had absolutely... Sort of, he was a pure opportunist, really. His name was Eddie Chapman. Um, and he happened to be in prison in Jersey when the Nazis invaded the Channel Islands, the only part of the British Isles that were occupied during the war. And he did a deal with German intelligence. He said, look, if you, if you train me um, and send me into Britain, I will spy for you in Britain. He was a sort of experienced um, munitions person. He, knew, he, he did, was the first person to import gelignite. Uh, into into Britain to blow safes up with to blow open safes. So he knew a lot about explosives, and he was essentially sent. You know, he he, he volunteered to be a, a saboteur, and they parachuted him into Britain in 1941, and he immediately defected um, to British intelligence um, and offered his services to them, and became the most effective double agent of the war. He he continued um, to to hold German intelligence. Uh, the confidence of German intelligence throughout the war. In fact, he was the only um, only citizen of, of, of Britain or America, I think, ever to be awarded the Iron Cross for his services to, to Germany. Um, so he was a <laughs> tremendous rogue, really. I mean, um, and one of the characters that I like. So, so, so the way I approached that story was I was actually called by a friend in MI5 who said this material is being released, you have to read it because it's oh, right. completely unbelievable. Um, and in fact, he didn't really believe large chunks of it. Um, and, and that was some years ago. That was, I think I began work on Agent Zigzag maybe 15 years ago. And at that point, quite a few of the people who, I mean, Eddie Chapman himself had only died in 1996. Mm-hmm. So there was a kind of a sort of journalism interview opportunity there as well. And that's, that's really, uh, if you can get that combination, sure. that's absolutely wonderful, where you've got, you've got the documentary evidence in, in the MI5 files that are declassified. You've got um, Chapman's own writings about his life, most of which are completely mendacious. Um, and then you've got living witnesses who can right. tell you what it was like. I mean, there's no greater benefit, I think, than, than having somebody who can say, actually, this was what the smell of the croissant were like that yeah, morning. So you can, so then you can put that stuff in, that those little fine details mm-hmm. that would be sort of abstruse in any other context, but because you know they are true because you have a witness to them, and you have yeah. to trust your witness, obviously, but that's, again, like journalism. Those three combinations create, I think... The sort of um, the the body that you need in order to 
pull apart or rather to put together a sort of a proper narrative because you can you can use both eyewitness accounts mm-hmm. and the documentation and kind of memoir sure. to bring there, it there's a together. lot of life in that there's a lot of life in that and in fact it's hard to do unless you have all three of those sure I would imagine um, and, and we're getting further and further away from your subject matter absolutely so I mean and that how is how are you what, contending with that well funny enough I mean you know I suppose it's not funny really but you know the witnesses that I used to have to the wartime material are now almost all gone there yeah. are very very few of course um, in fact I mean the, the, my last book about the SAS the, the, mm. the special services in, in Britain which is a sort of fabled uh, American special forces unit in fact the original special forces unit on which all others are are based uh, I had one no I had two living witnesses wow. to that uh, and by the end of the process of research I had one um, so so it is getting more, and I suppose the, the, the prosaic answer to your question is that the way I'm dealing with it is I'm, I'm becoming more modern. I've moved from, from the wartime stories into the Cold oh, War funny. now. So, um, and You're just I'm, chasing history. I'm chasing point. history. I'm trying to catch up, I suppose. Um, so my latest one is, is a Cold War story uh, oh, in, in which the main, the main protagonist is, is still around. Um, so oh, that's great. Well, that's been a very different experience, actually, yeah. because I've never written a book where the subject is in metaphorically, if not actually, in this case, looking over my shoulder. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a quite different sort of um, setup. I've I've enjoyed it actually, but it's it has its own it has it has its own again. It's a, I suppose it's a journalistic issue in some ways. It's it's mm-hmm. you know if you are if you are interviewing somebody, you are in a relationship with them of some sort, and that can be quite tricky. Absolutely. Uh, I want to go back to uh, honing this, for example, zigzag story. And so you have the interviews, you have the, the documents, you have other sort of uh, uh, source material. How does the narrative start to present itself? Especially, I mean, that's, that one's a pretty sprawling sort of story. It en- encapsulates a lot of times and places and people who have their own really fascinating stories. Well, that's the, I mean, you've put your finger on one of the, one of the trickinesses of this sort mm-hmm. of writing is that I frequently find the kind of smaller characters who come in and out to be so absorbing and so interesting that I can find myself heading off down a rabbit hole. Um, So I think one has to be pretty rigorous about, you know, whose story are you telling here and why are you telling it? Um, One of the things that I've often done, and this was actually particularly easy to do with Chapman, was to find the dramatic absolutely dramatic mm. high point of the story what, what what is the moment when the jeopardy which you have to have in all of these stories what's at stake mm-hmm. what's what's going to go right or what's going to go wrong more what's going to go wrong you know how could this how could this blow up um, and in Chapman's case that was in a way quite an obvious moment and that was the moment when he first parachuted into Britain mm-hmm. in 1941 when I think even he had not made up his mind whose side sure. he was on so, um, so you're you're at a moment of sort of decision and drama, and and high jeopardy both for the character himself, and in that case for a sort of wider war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Chapman did become a very important figure as a double agent, and yet, I mean, that was partly why he was codenamed Agent Zigzag, is they couldn't work out quite even right up to the end whose side he was really on. So, someone who zigs can also zag, and so they were never, and that that gave the story in a way its own internal narrative Mm -hmm. motor because I as the writer and possibly I hope also the readers throughout the book are wondering which way is he going to go is he going to 
because he's such a rascal. I mean, is he going to is he going to turn turn around at the end and betray everybody? Right. I mean, he doesn't. But he's so fact, mercenary, though. He's so mercenary and opportunistic. You just never know. No, I mean, That's mercenary, opportunistic, tremendously yeah. sort of fickle, but with some sort of strange mm-hmm. moral core that sort of more or less kept him on the right side. That said, I think if the Germans had won the war. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, um, uh, Gauleiter Chapman might well have been marching down the Kurvenstam, perfectly happy with the sure. outcome. I don't think he'd have been perfectly happy, but he, he <laughs> but was, he would have known where to he stand. He would have known how to compromise and get and get his way through. So, yeah. and it's funny, I, I guess, in isolating that moment, you sort of know how to load in the stakes, both personally and for the story itself, in the first half, and then sort of deal with the fallout in the second. Well, I hope so. I mean, I tend to pick a moment mm-hmm. that is. If I can, if I can do it, sort of more or less halfway through the narrative structure, and then so so in Chapman's case, you know, I, I began with him parachuting into this field in Cambridgeshire. You have no idea who he is. I mean, at that point, right. and he lands and he's trying to work out whose side he's on. He's a German spy. You know, he's British, but he's a German spy. And then I spool it all the way back to the beginning, and then try and reach that point again more or less halfway mm-hmm. through the narrative, so that the arc, as it were, at the top of the arc, and then. I hope hurtled down towards a towards right. a well. There is, you know, there's a great storytelling well, tradition of sort of finding that high point yeah, and then yeah. building it up, and then you grow to love and <laughs> hate or whatever it is yeah, the character. Yeah, um, I mean, there is a certain amount yeah. of artifice in it. It's not, sure. you know, it it is unlike straightforward history where you can simply say, right, this is a chunk, this is a chunk of time, or this is a right. person, or this is an event that I'm going to tell from the beginning to the end. It does require structure and artifice and a certain amount of manipulation actually of, of the characters but I hope without ever doing violence to the truth because right. stories are stories always and in fact any historian proper I mean, as it were academic historian any scholar worth his or her salt is also using those techniques of suspense and dramatic mm-hmm. narrative and, and jeopardy to, to if they're good, that's that's what the best historians do. I mean, Simon Sharma is a master at this. You know, he's a scholar, but he's also brilliant at kind of powering you on through the narrative by his choice of material. Well, I think you know, we can we can say it's in many times many times it's due to choice of material. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think we have to trust the storyteller too. Yeah. Uh, and I think, as you said, you know, you have to earn that trust by being honest about what information you have and then doling out the story and. A way that makes the critics often say it reads like fiction. Yeah. Um, tell me about discovering your voice. You know, I feel like the journalism aspect seems to come very naturally. Uh, you must enjoy that research uh, or talking to people. Uh, but finding the voice for the storytelling side of it. Yes, I, I, it's a good question. I mean, I have occasionally embarked on stories where my own voice has been overtaken sometimes by the voice of the characters I'm writing about. And that's a particular danger, I think, if you are writing a story where you don't have sufficient different sources, if you are reliant on perhaps your own protagonist to tell you what it was like and what was going on, then it is easy, it is too easy to lose your own narrative voice. I don't know how I would really characterise my own voice, except that I'm always... I mean, because this material is so outlandish, a lot of it, there is a kind of astonishment, I think, about the way I write, which is, you're not going to quite believe this, reader, but this really happened (laughs) next. And so I think if you can convey that sort of enthusiasm for the the pure strangeness, really, 
of of the world in general, but of this particular subsection of the world in particular. And of the truth of it. The truth of it, yeah. that's right. I mean, you know, the people... I mean, Chapman, again, is a good example. The people sort of standing around Chapman couldn't believe that he was this character, couldn't believe he was quite as larcenous <laughs> and kind of dodgy as he really was, uh, and yet tremendously important and useful for, for the war effort. So he was a kind of interesting combination that way, I think. But the voice is a difficult one. I mean, I suppose... In some ways, I mean, one of the authors that most inspired me very early on was Bruce Chatwin, who mm-hmm. wrote wonderful narrative travel books, really, but they were, they were kind of history travel books. Mm-hmm. And his sense of sort of wonder and, and love of ex- eccentricity and strangeness. I mean, you have to, if you write about Spice, you have to appreciate their very wackiness because sure. they're not like us. They are... They are. I don't know whether spying drives you mad or whether you have to be slightly <laughs> mad already to want to do it. But it's the truth is, as as James Jesus Angleton, who was the uh, famously uh, eccentric head of the CIA counterintelligence, said, he said it was a wilderness of minute mirrors. Um, and if you if you're in that wilderness for any period of time, you you do your grip on reality gets gets removed quite quickly. Well, is it any wonder so many become writers? No, not at all. I <laughs> think it's a direct line. It's a direct line. I think. And in fact, funny enough, I mean Operation Mincemeat, which we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, w- what I loved about that is the interplay between fact and fiction yeah. that happened in that story because. Uh, it's uh, very briefly that the plot is uh, it was to obtain a dead body and float it ashore on the coast of Spain disguised as a British officer carrying documents. All those documents were forged uh, with the idea that it would end up, end up in the hands of a German spy and then work its way all the way to Hitler's desk, which is duly what happened, uh, to the slight astonishment of the people who'd framed it, who did never expected it to work quite as well <laughs> as it did. Um, but what, what I loved about that story was that it came originally from Ian Fleming, mm-hmm. um, the author of the James Bond books, who was a junior officer in naval intelligence, who was asked by his, um, uh, by his superior officer, who was in fact the model for M in the, in, the, in the Bond stories, was asked to draw up a whole list of sort of ideas for bamboozling the enemy. And one of them was this idea of getting a dead body and, and using it to sort of pass a false message to the Germans. Now, Fleming had actually got that from another novelist called Basil Thompson. No, no one ever reads Basil Thompson now, but he was, a sort of, he was quite a well-known sort of um, thriller writer in the, sort of, in the early 30s. Tremendously bad writer, actually, but, but he did have a plot that sort of revolved around getting a dead body. Um, so, so it came from fiction mm-hmm. into the mind of a novelist who then wrote it up. It was then picked up by two frustrated would-be novelists, a, a man called um, Ewan Montague and another one called Charles Chumley. Um, and the two of them set about creating this character exactly as if they were writing a novel. They just yeah. sort of invented him out of pure cloth, right down to kind of complicated bits of bits and pieces in his wallet. You know, uh, he, they invented a kind of lover for him and a set of love letters and letters from the bank manager and yeah. ticket stubs and all that sort of thing. And it was, it was exactly as if they were creating a fiction, which, of course, is exactly what they yeah. were doing. What is amazing to me, and we've, I've talked about this in meetings and with uh, other writers, that the scenes you have of them creating this character... Uh, in Mincemeat, it feels like a, a TV writer's room. 
Yeah. It's all of these personalities yeah. sitting around. So, well, what about his love life? He doesn't. There's no love letter in there. Absolutely, you know, finding <laughs> these different aspects. It's a very good comparison. It's it, yes, it is like the writers' room. It's like you know, you got a sort of whiteboard up there and you're screwing down. Exactly. But often, as in, as I think happens quite frequently in, in that sort of writing, they went completely over the top. Right. I mean, they got so involved in their own fiction and making it up as they went along that they began to add in all sorts of kind of slightly weird, extraneous details sure. that didn't really need to be there. Um, so in a way... Well, you're learning so much about the people writing this yeah. character, right? Yeah. I mean, they were putting themselves they in They were, and they were projecting their own personality. And indeed, their own, their own love lives and yeah. their own sexual frustrations were, were going into this sort of this one character who, as you can imagine, became frightfully complicated <laughs> in the end. So and I love that, that it was a sort of... It was a sort of combined effort of sort of wild imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked. I mean, you know, it, it, although it, they were tasked at one point, and this again addresses your writer's, your writer's comparison, your writer's room comparison. Um, they were, one of the senior officers said, look, this is, this is so elaborate, this story, that it's, it's so completely over the top, the thing you're trying to say, that, that no one's ever going to believe it. And they said, ah, you see, we're not trying to convince you know, a, a reader of English novels that it's true. We're trying to convince Germans, and they're much more literal. <laughs> you know, so that right. was the idea. Was that, you they know, just justify it. <laughs> justify the whole thing that way, which is, you know, It's mad, so really. funny. Yeah. Um, and, it, I mean, it's an interesting thing, too, for you to approach this as saying, I'm going to tell the story of Operation Mincemeat and then sort of discover these characters and, and really get into the psychology of these characters along the way. Well, again, they are not straightforward characters. That's what no. makes them so interesting is they are, you know, we are used in a way to writing about the war. And this is mm-hmm. true on both sides of the Atlantic, as if it is a simple moral fable. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, it's the last war that really, it, it, you know, there was a moral punch to it. We knew which side we were on. We knew who were the goodies and who were the baddies. And we were on the right side of history. Well, of course, actually, when you look more closely at war, it's never like that. And the Second World War is not like that. I mean, these were complicated, compromised people who had their own lives and their own backstories. They're not the sort of one-dimensional heroes that we have come... We came to expect, really, from the 1950s black-and-white sort of movies that, you know, that sort of portrayed the war in very simple, simplistic, black-and-white moral terms. Bad Germans good British and Americans, we win, we deserve to win. Which is fine, but it isn't true to history quite. I mean, there were were wrong-uns on both sides, there were brave people on both sides, not to say that in any way there was a moral equivalence (laughs) in what was going on. But people are complicated. People are complicated. On all sides, people are complicated. And and what's been wonderful about this sort of of strange um, sort of stream that I'm on is that uh, they become endlessly complicated. And, mm-hmm. and my interest in war, I've never been interested in guns and tactics mm-hmm. and manoeuvres and ranks and, you know, what, which right. kind of, you know, who goes where. I'm much more interested in what war does to people. Mm-hmm. And what, what war does for people. I mean, one of the other things that one discovers looking at these sort of stories is that for some people the war was a tremendously exciting mm-hmm. adventure um, and very interesting and indeed a sort of intellectual challenge in intelligence terms. Mm. They, were, they were working out a puzzle 
in lots of ways. I mean, if you look at the Bletchley Park transcripts yeah. and, the, and the sort of Enigma staff and a lot of the sort of deception operations, it was a kind of glorified... I mean, game is the wrong word, quite. Right. But it was, a, it was a tremendously absorbing and exciting challenge with horror around the edges. I mean, dreadful right. things were going on, as we, as we know, and lives were at stake. But for a lot of people, it was a tremendous amount of fun. Sure. I mean, you do get the idea just in reading these books. I think, again, because you you do put it... We, we sympathize so much with the characters in the way that you write them that... A game is the wrong word, but they're a little bit outside. These That's are right. such smart people. Well, they're not frontline soldiers. They're yeah. not people who are sitting in the trenches being shot at. The reality that it is, you know, that, that we see for a frontline yeah. soldier is, is one reason. But actually, like the frontline soldiers, humor is very important mm-hmm. to these sorts of stories because, actually, as in all wars, humor is tremendously important to, to, to military life. It's one of the things that really keeps it going. Mm-hmm. And people like Chapman and the, the framers of Operation Mincemeat, indeed the ones who framed the D-Day deception, had, mm-hmm. a, had a strong sense of both drama, their own drama, and irony. I mean, they found at times sure. the whole thing killingly funny. <laughs> um, and they were killingly, I mean, you know, I used, to, I, <laughs> I used it advisedly, but, but, you know, they were... There is a sort of rich vein of eccentric, principally British humour that runs through these operations. And trying to catch that in, mm-hmm. in tone is, again, one of the challenges because what you can't do with these stories is make them seem ridiculous right. or slapstick, although they veer close to that at times, um, because actually what's at stake is tremendously important. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the D-Day deception, 150,000 lives were hinging on whether or not they managed, this very eccentric group of spies managed to convey an enormous, whopping great lie to the Germans. It's fascinating. Um, Are there stories that have gotten away from you? Um, Thankfully, I've never embarked on a book and then realised halfway (laughs) through, this is is not going to take me where I want to go. Um, Stories that have got away from me, yes. I mean, I think there are times when I've felt myself not being able to find the voice mm-hmm. um, and that's often because the material isn't there frequently sure. I mean you need to have I mean it's almost unique in a way that the espionage world in, in be able occasionally to provide this level of kind of detail uh, other narrative non-fiction is it would be hard it's hard for example to find a narrative non-fiction love story mm-hmm. because they don't really exist mm-hmm. Um, or at least not that I've been able to find another one or two, but, but, but it's very hard to find that level of detail. You need to know what people were thinking, what they were doing. And, right. and lovers will say lots of things, but they may not give you that kind of depth of internal, um, specul- internal intensity that you, you actually get from, from, from this kind of espionage story. Because in some ways the, the, the spy world addresses, I think, a lot of the a lot of the kind of essence of what great fiction does mm-hmm. um, because you can, you can actually address subjects like loyalty and love and betrayal and adventure and romance, but they're all true. So, so that it's, you know, that's not true of almost any other walk of human life. Yeah, and I would, 
advise people to start with mincemeat because it does have all of those things in it because you've got this cast of characters and they each sort of go off uh, and experience the world in the with these huge themes. Yeah, I, I loved writing Operation Mincemeat, and there is a sort of there is a lovely, gentle, sort of semi-expressed, never quite revealed love affair mm-hmm. that runs through that. It's a very English sort of love affair in the sense <laughs> that no one ever yes. quite admits that it's going on. Um, you're far too stiff up a lip for that, but it's but it's there, and it's rather tender, and it's very sweet, and in the end, it's really quite painful. It's re- it's yeah. actually rather poignant and. Yeah. And and moving because of course it is it doesn't happen anywhere because it's largely in the minds of the people who are who are who are who are constructing this this great deception. So it's and I suppose in a way also it sort of uh, the world of deception is very interesting because of course people deceive all the time in in everyday life. It is absolutely woven into human experience. But spying is one of the few areas where it is actually <laughs> systematized and studied sure. and done as an art. And valued. <laughs> and valued. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's funny. Um, what does your day look like when you are working on a book? Uh, and, and how do you go from research to the actual writing? Does it hit a critical mass? Uh, or do you just start to jumping in? How, well, as a journalist, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a deadline junkie. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I suspect I would probably never have written a word without <laughs> the deadline. So I, I'm absolutely superstitious and rigorous about deadlines. I don't miss them. Um, I tend to write on a two-year cycle. So, I, so I'm, I would tend to, at the moment, I'm publishing roughly every two years. Mm-hmm. And that usually works out, and this is rather schematic, as a year of research and a year of writing. I, I, I don't really tend to sit down and start writing until I have got pretty much 90% of what I think I'm going to need. Um, and then I go back and find more if I need to. And there, there just comes that moment where you think, I can't, I gotta, I can't, I, I cannot yeah. dig any more on this. I've <laughs> got to get it down on paper or I'm going to start losing it. Uh, and my, my, my writing day, again, I, I try to be as rigorous as I can. Um, I tend to get up very early. I tend to get up sort of at about five in the morning and, and I try to, I find I write much better at, 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 at sort of uh, in the early hours of the mm-hmm. day, um, <laughs> maybe before my children have arrived. Sure. Um, <laughs> I hear this a lot. But I fear, I feel if I can get, if I can get, if I can get maybe even a thousand words out, mm-hmm. they won't, may not be the finished words, but mm-hmm. if I can get if I can get a thousand words on paper at the end of the day, and then go back and you know check them and go over them endlessly, but but that that's a that's a decent day. So I tend to then try and write it in a year, um, and that's yeah, it's it's a challenge, but it's but it seems to work really. It seems mm-hmm. to work. I think, and there is an advantage in these stories to give them pace. Mm-hmm. Um, in writing them pretty fast, mm-hmm. actually. I mean, uh, s- s- I, I, some of my best books, I think, have been written at a pretty pell-mell pace because I was kind of needing to meet a deadline. Sure. Some of the ones that haven't worked so well, I think, are ones that I had a much longer time to write in. Interesting. Why do you think that is? I think one can become rather sort of in love with one's own material if you have a lot of time. You can sure. become rather sort of... Um, you can get stuck in corners and end up down alleyways because you've got a bit of time on your hands. Whereas if you feel you've got a deadline, this is also true of, of journalism, I think, very often, that actually the looming deadline means you, you have to be pretty clear and you have to be pretty clinical about what, it, what stays in and what doesn't mm-hmm. because you've got to get there. Mm-hmm. You've got to get there. I mean, the hot breath of the, 
of the deadline is, sure. is on your tail. And while that can be a bit stressful, I actually find it extremely conducive. But then, as I say, I've been a journalist for so long, it's probably, probably some terrible addiction that I have. <laughs> sure. Have you become, probably due to being you know, a journalist on deadlines, good at editing yourself? I think fairly good, mm-hmm. although there is nothing more wonderful than having a good editor sure. as a writer. I mean, I, I, you know, I've had, edit- and I have wonderful editors at the moment who can transform a, a second-rate manuscript into something that is really much, much better and can actually sort of, you know, save you quite a lot of the time. Yeah. It's hard when you're writing, um, particularly, I, maybe this is, I'm sure this is true even more of novelists, but it's easy to get lost in your story and to... Mm-hmm. And to sort of because you have certain affection for certain elements of it to lose sight of the whole the sweep of it and that I think is when an editor can be absolutely gold dust but no I'm pretty ruthless with myself I don't uh, you know the morning after the the night before I will go back and have a look and think Mm -hmm. well okay that's and quite a lot of it ends up in the in the waste paper basket that's good if you can have that kind of distance in a short time a short time later quite I mean and I think it's best done pretty much immediately I think I'm not one of those writers that writes the whole manuscript Mm -hmm. and then goes back to the beginning and decides what stays I'm quite piecemeal in that way I mean I will I will you know, I, I, I used to try and structure. I structure it slightly less now, but you know, after a week's writing, I would go back and look at the whole chapter and then decide. But even after a day's writing, I would insist on going back over mm-hmm. it the next day and making sure that it works. Uh, and, and are it you in in that? Well, let me let me back up for one second and ask: in that year of research, has the story taken shape? Do you know what? the book is going to look like what the structure is going to look like no not always um, and that can be one of the slightly nerve-wracking things is that one is amassing huge files yeah. of notes and so on and and often it's not until near the 11th hour that you that you work out or f- think you may have hit on the way to bring all of this stuff together but again uh, i don't want to harp on this theme but i think that is also true of sort of the longer form journalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, you often end up gathering huge amounts of material which you don't use. Sure. Um, so how do you start to organize that? Do you do, you do whiteboards? Do you have notebooks? What I have notebooks like? mostly. I have notebooks and I have card, uh, old, mm-hmm. rather old fashioned card indexes that, yeah. I, that, I, that I run through. <laughs> I mean, they look pretty antiquated these days, but um, I've yet to find a writing program that is as, that is as that is as visually effective as a set of a yeah. set of card notes, um, because I think perhaps as a someone who did not grow up in the digital age, I, I find the sort of tactile physical memory of of notes and paper much easier to deal with than a great sprawling mm-hmm. digital mass that I can't find my a maze I can't find my way back into, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact I'm yeah I'm pretty. I'm I'm sort of haunted by the by the fear that you know if my card indices go up in flames, <laughs> I'm back to the beginning, which of course isn't necessarily true of the digital world. You can sort of save it in sure. different ways. But no, I'm pretty I'm kind of old fashioned that way. And then I quite often I I'm, I have a very large long table where I write, mm-hmm. and I will I will I will rearrange the notes and the card in indices in a kind of narrative order, and then. I don't always stick to it, but that that mm-hmm. then becomes the sort of skeleton of a of the of the, of the story itself. So a lot of pieces of paper is the short answer. Yeah, well, it gives you something to hang on to. I mean, I think this is how most of us will break story yeah. and sort of give it the structure. Um, and then in that year of writing, 
do you begin thinking of what's next? Or I try not focused? to. I yeah. try not to because it can be very distracting, I think, if you've got... Although that said, it's a rule I frequently break mm-hmm. because, um, I mean, for example, with the last book, I was beginning to research it that a new book before I'd even started mm-hmm. writing the last book, and that was simply because of, of again, a sort of temporal pressure, mm-hmm. a sort of time pressure that was pushing on me. But I try not to because I think um, each book needs its own integrity and there's a danger of sort of cross-pollination, if that's the right word. Mm-hmm. You can end up, you know, each one has a slightly different sort of language and a different feel and a different tone and a different place often. Um, and, and if they start to elide that can be a bit tricky, I think. So I try to be quite rigorous about that. So often when I finish a, a book, there's a sort of sort of grim period of sort of postnatal sure. <laughs> anxiety where I begin to think, oh, my God, I don't know what the heck I'm going to write next. Right. And, and I'll never write, I'll never write another book <laughs> and no story will ever occur to me. And then, yeah. you know, so there isn't, there isn't much of a kind of gap <laughs> between books. Two, every two years is, is, a, is, a, is a perhaps, a, a, in some ways, perhaps a bit of a quick... Um, a bit, perhaps a bit too fast in terms of turnover, mm. but actually, I, I, I quite like. Yeah, that. it feels really reasonable—a mm. a reasonable amount of time to spend mm. with one subject. I think so. I think so. I mean, it's, I'm not writing, you know, the history of the Hundred Years' War. Right. I'm, I'm my, my, <laughs> my, my stories are often chronologically quite, yeah. quite restricted. Although they often tend to be sort of biographical. Mm-hmm. I, I don't linger long no. on the on the sort of early life. I don't tend to linger terribly long on the afterlife. I'm, I'm there for the story. Yeah. Um, was writing always the thing? Did you know that this was the path for you? No, not really. I, yeah. I thought I would be... I also always thought I would write in some capacity, okay. but I thought I would teach, actually. I, I, I wanted to be an academic teacher. I wanted to be an academic historian. Um, and like, oh, and like, to teach. I like my father, um, which, of course, would involve and increasingly involve right. a great deal of writing. But in, when I was considering it, it was a sort of still primarily a teaching mm-hmm. profession. Um, so how did writing start to take shape for you as, as a viable... A career? Well, I, it was journalism. I mean, I was a journalist yeah. before I was a book writer. Um, and I fell into journalism, really, partly by accident here in the States. I, I, um, I was doing a postgraduate degree at Columbia University in international affairs. Okay. Um, because I, actually that was one of my special interests, and I thought I might even teach that. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was here, um, I began freelancing for British newspapers, uh, largely because I'd run out of money, um, and and became intoxicated by the the. the pl- I still get an enormous pleasure out of the the sort of daily hit mm-hmm. of journalism. There's a there's a sort of nobility to it, which you often forget in the age of fake news. But it's <laughs> you know th- there's something tremendously satisfying and clean about mm-hmm. writing the best thing you could write in the short space of time and the and the the facts that you could assemble. And it's not perfect. It's not I mean, you know, it's not it's not even half perfect, but it was the best you could do on the day. And it, the fact that it is tomorrow's parrot cage lining is irrelevant <laughs> because yeah. it's it's as honest as you could get it, and you just do it again the next day. And I mm. I find I still find the balance between the sort of visceral kind of honesty of daily journalism and the 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 longer form incredible pleasure of being able to construct a book. I find those two things work mm-hmm. very well for me together, and I, I would find it very hard not to do one of them. I would, mm-hmm. I, I would find it very hard to be, and lonely, actually, to be sure. a full-time writer. It's a, it's a strange kind of solitary business 
there's something about the sort of the sort of hurly burly of a newsroom when there's a breaking story that is still catnip for me. I still yeah. I still love doing that. Well, it is a collaborative still in a way that that even book writing isn't. Isn't I know, and I, and I sort of find I need sometimes to break away from from book writing in order to sort of replenish myself <laughs> sure. at the kind of and vice versa I get you know sometimes if I've been doing if I've been on a sort of because I still I still work for the Times of London mm. and, I still, and I'm still on the staff there um, and I love it and I will never leave um, but I but the, you know I, I find that balance works very well for me and sometimes I just need to get back to the kind of Absolutely. the grit of that early on in uh, as a journalist what were the challenges for you? Were you comfortable writing? Were you comfortable reporting? What, I love them both, actually. Yeah. I, I think I was probably... I'm probably a better... I don't know. I'm not sure. I think I'm probably slightly <laughs> better at writing than I am at reporting. I'm mm-hmm. quite a shy person. So, actually, I find sometimes um, approaching a stranger and asking them <laughs> to tell me things I find quite tricky. <laughs> Easier when I'm writing a book, actually. But, but yeah. um, you have more time to reflect on it. I'm not... I I'm definitely was never a foot-in-the-jaw door... Foot-in-the-jaw... Foot-in-the-door journalist. I, I wasn't any good at that. Um, so, I guess, yeah, it's a combination of the two. And in a way... I suppose some of my books are a little like reporting history. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of, um, I'm as it were, metaphorically sticking a microphone under the nose of people who are, who who were in the past or whose stories sure. lie in the past. Sure. Um, as I, you said, it's, I mean, it's a very similar sort of storytelling. It is in a way, I, I think, and it's some. Um, Funnily enough, I, I interviewed Robertson Davies years ago, the the great Canadian novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was rather inspiring interview actually because he he sort of said that he thought he would never have been a, a, a writer of books if he hadn't been a journalist first and and he said that he found the rigor of having to produce mm. a set number of words to a set deadline on a daily or weekly basis was what sort of gave him the motor to write and I remember it absolutely vividly and I always I always I found that a very uh, inspiring and very memorable thing to say because I, I felt very much the same myself. I don't think I would have, I don't know that I'd ever have written anything without, sure. without the, the, you know, the it, well, it, it does get you in the habit. Right? It does. Like, and there's so much to that. Absolutely. Just that momentum. And, and the habit is exactly the word. I mean, if mm-hmm. you, I, I, you know, I, I, I feel very odd if I, if I go for a long period without writing something. I feel yeah. as if something is slightly missing. Um, it's as if one went for you know a long period without having a conversation or yeah. you know or or something like that. It's 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 become absolutely part of my daily mm-hmm. my daily world. And I don't write absolutely every day, particularly not when I'm in the research phase. But I tend to write. I I try to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, what are what are the particular challenges of these sort of histories that you're writing? Outside of the research part. Well, I suppose it is maintaining momentum because, actually, again, it was another great writer who said this to me once, and this was John le Carre, who has been a, David Cornwall, to give him his real name, who's been a great friend for, for many years, yeah. who I often have discussed my work with him, and his... his View and he's absolutely right. Is that jeopardy is absolutely central to these stories? There, ha- you know, there has to be some reason, some some uncertainty, some unsolved, perhaps insoluble question that you are posing to the reader that you've posed at the beginning that you will try and unlock in the course of this book, uh, and that is usually a form of jeopardy. It usually means something is at stake. It may be an individual. It may be the war. It may be you know. It may be something very simple. But but the, but so so the, the challenge in a way for I've always found is to maintain the momentum, 
but at the same time to give yourself enough air and enough breathing space to try and bring character out. Um, and the two don't always sit together. Character doesn't necessarily make momentum, and, and certainly, you know, you can sometimes in the heat of the story, you can forget that you're dealing with people whose personalities need to be part of the story. So it's that getting that balance between movement and and individuality. Mm-hmm. It can be can be quite tricky sometimes. I find. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How do you find your way around it? Is it just keeping those things in mind? Just trying to keep them in mind and realizing when you've headed off too far in one direction. Yeah. Um, and again, a, a, a great editor can often can mm-hmm. often do that for you. It's, I mean, it's tricky to see the wood for the trees sometimes. You know, yeah. particularly when um, you're dealing with. I mean, with these sorts of stories, they are quite complicated. I mean. Deception operations are not straightforward. They often involve all sorts of different moving parts and different characters doing different things in different places. And that can be a challenge too. I, I, I read a book about um, the D-Day deception called mm-hmm. Double Cross, which involved, was really carried out by five different spies, five double agents who were feeding misinformation back to the Germans. And, and that, was, that, that was, in a way, the trickiest book I've ever written because none of these five ever met each other. They, although they were doing the same thing for the same purpose, they were run by a single unit of, of British intelligence uh, with American help. And yet they never met each other. And so trying to interlace and interrun five different narratives yeah. was tricky and some readers found it very hard to follow. Hmm. Um, as a writer, I occasionally found it quite hard to sure. follow. So that, I think, also comes with this particular territory, mm-hmm. that, that frequently you have different people doing different things at different times with a single aim in mind. Right. Uh, and, and so tr- I mean, the way I tried to get around that was to tell the stories through the unit that was running them less than it was the individual stories mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah, and there is, I mean, you do some neat tricks to sort of overcome those hurdles too, mm. I've noticed, where you will not not really flash forward, but oftentimes go back, sort of reverse the narrative to reintroduce this character or to introduce well, a new character. Well, you have to. You have to. If you've got five yeah. stories running simultaneously, you are going to get out of sync. <laughs> so, yes, that requires a certain sleight of hand. Yeah. Um, I suppose it is a novelistic technique, mm-hmm. but it isn't fiction. I mean, right. I suppose that's oh, the distinction I'd like to make is that, you know, while you may, I mean, I frequently, for example, will try to use cliffhangers, mm-hmm. as it were, or yeah. unres- I will retain a piece of information right. that might sit within the chronology, but that actually will work dramatically much better if I hold it back. So is that novelizing? It's not, I don't think. It's no. not, it's not, inve- it's not. It's Imagining something that didn't happen, right? But it is constructing a story, a yeah. tale, yeah. something that people will listen to, and and you know, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it certainly is part of what makes these stories from you come alive. You know, we, we've talked about, you know, you you sort of gotten to the core of what you find interesting about these sort of uh, deception stories, specifically. Uh, are there other stories you want to tell? Are there, are, do you want to sort of look into that in a different area at some point? Yes, I, I think I would like to write about an earlier era of intelligence. I mean, I, I, hmm. I, mean, I, I moved a little away from the intelligence sphere for my last book, which was mm-hmm. a much more sort of military book. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I would like, I think, to move to an earlier period, and I'm I'm sort of fascinated by actually 18th century espionage, which was which was oh. again the sort of in a way the birthplace of 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 how the sort of spy game started, and there are some wonderful stories from the sort of you know the the machinations going on between the great powers in the sort of in the, in the 18th and, and early 19th centuries, which I which I which I think I would like to like to look at. Um, as I said earlier, I mean, I'd, I'd love to. I'm sort of keen to write a love story, really. I'd love to do a sort of a look at how, uh, if I can find the right story and if I can find the right material. Mm-hmm. Um, but it re- it's tricky. It's, it requires a sort of correspondence trouvé of kind of both yeah. sides and diaries and letters and memos and, right. and um, the right sort of and the right stakes kind of in the exactly. world. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And they don't they don't happen very often, but I'm sure no. they do happen. And you know, so I'm going to try and dig out some of those, but. But I'm also fascinated by the Cold War at the moment because it has such incredible resonance uh, for our own time. Yeah. I mean, the, the the parallels are extraordinary. I think, and it's um, some of what I've been writing in the last year or two, which is a sort of Cold War story, feels very contemporary to me. Wow. It feels as if I'm almost writing about events that are happening today, even though we're talking about the 70s and 80s. Right. Um, because it really has come full circle in lots of ways. Yeah. Uh, was that part of the impetus for this story, or, or did the story just find you otherwise? Well, that, it was part of the impetus. That and the search for living witnesses. I mean, <laughs> the fact that I was running out of people to talk to sure. about it because they were all dying on That's me. Um, so, I, I, you know, I was very keen to find people who could sort of actually comment, because that's the real... Yeah. You know, if you if you can have both the documentary evidence and somebody telling you what it meant, that's gold dust. Then, yeah. you're, then you're off to the races. Uh, is there a fiction in you? I've often thought about it, and I'd love to have a crack at it sometime. My joke, when people ask me that, is I usually say that my grip on reality is so sort of tenuous <laughs> that if I was unleashed into fiction, I wouldn't know where to stop. Um, and I do think there's something in that. I mean, there is something about the, stru- the, the sort of constraints of non-fiction that keep mm. you honest in some ways. Yeah. You know, one thing happened and then something else happened <laughs> or didn't happen. But, but with fiction, of course, anything can happen right. um, within the bounds of, of sort of your own imagination. And so I'm a, little, I'm a little daunted by that. But also I'd love to have a crack at it. Um, and so I think I will try that. And in fact, that might Good. even be the next the next, the next. That would be great. Look, we'll be there to read it. <laughs> Thank uh, you. What are you reading these days? What is getting you excited or inspired? Well, at the moment, I'm rereading all of Evelyn Waugh mm-hmm. because he's such a brilliant stylist and he's such a waspish, brutal man. <laughs> and he writes so well and uh, in some way that very few novelists of that era have stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. You know, people, perhaps... I mean, this is a rather controversial thing to say, but I don't think people really read Kingsley Amos anymore or Anthony Pohl. But they, boy, they read Evelyn Waugh still. I mean, he still has a kind of... There's something about his deeply ironical, vicious tone that is absolutely irresistible, yeah. I think. Well, I think that's a more modern tone than Isn't it? some of these I other guys. So. So, so I'm enjoying that very much. What prompted the reread? I thought it was try- actually the question that you asked me the preamble to that was you know would I try fiction and I was sort of trying to see if maybe there was some sort of modern wavian mm. tone that I could find is that how you say it wavian <laughs> um, but I, that's mostly for pleasure actually sure. um, it all goes in though it all well I hope so I don't know it's um, it's interesting I'm yes I'm I'm enjoying that a great mm. deal I find I I read less fiction these days than I ever mm. have done before I. Um, I'm, I find myself mostly reading for, for work and for sure. research. So I'm, 
I read an awful lot of sort of KGB manuals and those kind of things, um, which are fascinating in their own way. But um, are there good histories from the past few years that you could recommend to people who maybe have exhausted your catalog? Um, <laughs> fiction or non-fiction? Either really. But, well, but uh, the non-fiction. non-fiction I'm I mean, of. of course. Um, well, I mean, I guess one of the sea changes in in in, in this world is that. In Britain, official histories have been written of both MI5 and MI6, mm-hmm. the Internal Security Service and the Foreign Intelligence Service. And they're both, in very different ways, utterly fascinating and filled with kind of strange incidental <laughs> stories. And I find that, you know, a dip into those still makes me think, good grief, this really is a, this really is a very strange world I've ended up in here. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd recommend those to anybody. They're, they're, one is by Christopher Andrew and the other by the late Keith Jeffrey. Um, there are good. Uh, there's a new sort of generation of f- of spy fiction coming up. I mm-hmm. think. I mean, there's a there's a brilliant um, sort of British writer called Charles Cumming, who is, I think, really the heir to um, to John le Carre. He writes the most wonderful um, modern espionage thrillers. And like le Carre, he has a very keen psychological insight while also knowing how to spin a terrific mm-hmm. yarn so so I'm, okay. I'm i'm a big fan of his well people should check it out uh and very briefly movies television what are you watching what's getting you excited well i'm a huge <laughs> fan of the i mean god the, the binge box set uh, i can't <laughs> get enough of it i mean in terms of spies i thought the americans is just brilliant yeah. wonderfully For wonderfully sure. good fun and there's a very good i, I hope i'm sure it's available in america um a, a french spy series called le bureau which is that. about the DGST, the, the sort of French intelligence service, and it's brilliantly put together. It's very French. I mean, there's a, you know, there's, it's very romantic and extremely sort of um, suave and, and sophisticated, but it's, it's, a, it's a lovely, clever insight into how modern spying oh. is done. Le Bureau, I thoroughly recommend that. Great, I'll look for it. And um, I guess, yeah, I mean, I was a huge fan of the Band of Brothers way mm. of, of telling the story of war. So actually, funnily enough, at the moment... I'm I'm working with a with a company to try and develop SAS the story of the SAS into a into oh, a into a into a television series. That's a great idea. Which would be great fun. Listen, they'd all be great series. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, congratulations! Uh, and the new book is just out last year, right? The SAS uh, you, book. The SAS book came out last year, yeah. and I've got another one coming out. Well, actually, it was published in in the autumn of 2016. Okay. That one. So so my next one will be out in the autumn of this year. Okay. So, so, okay. so people year. keep an eye out. Uh, ben, thank you for talking with me. Great pleasure. I appreciate. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for listening to the Writers Panel. Tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe and review the Writers Panel on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. And let me know who you want to have on the show. The Writers Panel is a co-production of the Forever Dog Podcast Network and the ATX Television Festival. You can listen to more Forever Dog podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com. And keep up with the ATX Fest throughout the year at atxfestival.com. Thank you, and see you next week. Well, you'll hear me next week. Thanks for subscribing. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.